before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk to you about our partner for this podcast, Famigo, formerly known as BravoPay. Famigo is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at Famigo.com. I'll leave more info in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The 80-20 Show. I'm your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is entertainment lawyer Rachel Stilwell, who's been in the top music lawyers list in Billboard for three years in a row. In this interview, we discuss her expansive career starting in radio promotion and marketing for record labels, then switching into law, eventually starting her own practice. In addition, we discuss her involvement in the Recording Academy and other organizations in the music industry. Also, she has this fantastic story about one of her clients who is an influencer bikini model and their interaction with OnlyFans. It is my absolute honor and privilege to give you Rachel Stilwell. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks so much for having me here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. You know, it was so funny, too, because we were talking about before about what things to talk about. And I actually have more questions here than I probably have for any other guests, which no offense to the other guests. I had such great conversations, but there's so much we can dive into. So I'm really, really excited to be uh, interviewing you. And we've only known each other for a couple of years now, but it seems like a lot longer, doesn't it? It does. It does. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did do some deep diving into your your past, and I noticed that you actually went to college for philosophy originally. I did. I got my undergrad, my bachelor's from UCLA in philosophy. Not so, the most practical degree to get, but uh, it worked for me. Did you know at that point in time that you wanted to get into the music industry, or were you not sure yet going to college what you wanted to, to uh, have a career in? Well, I, I started out as a voice performance major. And like everybody else in the music industry, I am a frustrated musician who realized that I was far smarter than I was talented. And I decided uh, it made more sense to get a degree in something other than performance. I'd always been interested in philosophy. My dad was a philosophy major. Uh, I was a very curious person and um, didn't yet have an understanding or care for how a degree might actually apply in real life. Um, I just liked the idea of learning philosophy. As it turns out, one thing that philosophy, a philosophy degree is good for is applying critical thinking to law. So it wound up working out uh, later, but that was not planned. So that's really interesting. Did you, so now switching over to a philosophy degree, did you, was your mind still set in doing something in the music industry? Yeah. Um, so I started out as an intern in 1988 at MCA Records in Los Angeles and simultaneously uh, was director of the UCLA Jazz Festival uh, in 1988. I actually went to UCLA because I was offered 
that position. What I really wanted to do in college was direct a jazz festival. And um, so I did. And eventually, much later, I wound up getting a degree. Um, but I knew I wanted to be in the music business really early. Um, by the time I was 18 and didn't know what kind of a career that might wind up being, but I, but I wanted to be a part of music. And if I could talk somebody into letting me do it for a living, then, uh, all the better. So why directing a jazz festival? That's really, so I have a jazz background myself, so that's really intriguing to me. So it was like, were you really into jazz music? Like, was that where you're doing vocal performance in? Yeah, I was getting into jazz. I mean, at the time I thought I was an expert and uh, which was clearly not the case. Um, but I, you know, I, I uh, grew up listening to jazz through my parents and, um, and as a vocal performance major, um, I uh, was at Golden West College, a junior college in Huntington Beach, California. And I enrolled in something called jazz ensemble. And I thought, that was a choir. So I walked into my first day of junior college into the jazz ensemble room where it was a bunch of guys with horns. <laughs> yep, I can relate to that. And I said to the professor, I am in the wrong room. I and I did not intend to enroll in this class. I'm sorry, I'm gonna go enroll right now. And he said, wait a minute. He said, well, what do you do? And I said, I sing. And he said, well, why don't you stay? So I did. And, um, and I was the girl singer in the jazz band that I accidentally enrolled in and was convinced and was talked into staying. And, um, and while I was there, I had to learn if I was just going to sing in a key that I could sing, it meant I needed to learn how to transpose parts for horns. And I took an arranging class and, um, you know, I tried being a musician. As it turned out, I learned a lot about music and musicians in that process, but I also realized that I was a good but not great singer, still am, unless you're talking to my daughter, she thinks I'm a horrible singer. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but, but I wanted to be part of that world. And I, and eventually I went from being the girl singer in the band to part of the band and was pretty much treated like an equal. And, um, and they appreciated that I wanted to learn and pull my own weight. So I decided to keep going in a business capacity. And, um, and that's when I decided to take an internship at MCA in their publicity department. And as it turns out, both of the publicists that I worked for at MCA are now my clients. Wow. Small world, huh? And I mean, that's small how world. it works is that everyone, it, as, as you get more involved in the industry, I find is that the smaller it gets, like everyone knows everyone else and is connected with each other in some yeah. form or fashion. And, you know, people that were your bosses are now your clients or people that your clients are now your bosses. It, it, it's, it's ever changing. It's very true. So, okay. So you entered at MCA for publicity. Um, at that point in time, did you have a better idea about what you wanted to do in the music industry or were you trying to still figure things out at that point in time? I was just happy to be in the building. And as it turns out down the hall was MCA Jazz. 
oh, nice. run by Ricky, Ricky Schultz. And, um, and they gave away free prom promos and um, CDs were still relatively new. So I was down the hall a lot. And, um, and the one person uh, that would sort of give me the time of day there uh, besides Ricky Schultz, who ran the, the label, was Deborah Dumas, who was their head of promotion, um, which meant radio promotion. And um, and I liked the idea of what she did for a living. And eventually I moved my internship from publicity to radio promotion and um, and got hooked. And um, and then later when I really entered the workforce, I entered in doing radio promotion. So I also noticed too, was that the point in time that you then moved to uh, to Verve Music Group? Was that around that time when you realized that you had that passion for promotion? It was, that was a few years later. I okay. up and dropped out of UCLA in my junior year, moved to New York for love that did not work out, but I wound up uh, having, uh, I, I got a job as the assistant to the president of Profile Records which was the biggest independent rap label of its day, home wow. to Run DMC. Um, so essentially, in within a year, I moved from Orange County to UCLA to Profile Records. Um, I had a lot of learning to do culturally, and um, and moving suddenly to New York City and and um, and getting a position uh, working for Corey Robbins at Profile was um, a great opportunity. It was scary as hell. And I, when I moved to New York, it was actually reluctantly and said, well, uh, we'll see how this goes. And I figured, uh, you know, I'll just stay for a little bit. I wound up staying in New York for 11 years, uh, a year and a half at Profile, and then left uh, to take a job as a temp at Verve. So leaving a relatively secure job for a completely insecure job, a temp position because it was the best label in the world and I wanted to be there. That's and incredible. I, I, and I stayed for nine or 10 years at Verb. So that's interesting that, you know, especially making that bold of a move to going for something very secure into insecure. Were there any preparations that you made to make that? that move? Cause especially that since you wanted to work specifically yep. at Verve. I called mom <laughs> and I, call, I called mom and I said, mom, um, I, you know, I've got a job and it's okay, but I'm an assistant and I, and I really want to do something else, but, um, but doing something else without having it lined up doesn't make any sense. And my mom said one of the wisest things um, to me that she's ever said, even though she said quite a bit, few wise things to me. And she said, I've never regretted making a move anywhere. I've only regretted not making a move somewhere. So if you're thinking about it, just go ahead and do it. Um, and I did. And I never looked back. And mom was right. Thank you, mom. Very wise words. And she will be watching this. Definitely. So I'm <laughs> glad I was able to get that in. So Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah, Those are very wise words. Now, it's interesting because the fact that you lived in both New York and as well as Los Angeles uh, for 
quite some time. Um, you know, people talk about the music industry culture, you know, the music culture in both of those cities. Like those are the two, when you think about the music industry in general, those are usually the main two cities that you think about. So can you talk a little bit more of your personal experience and the differences between LA music culture and New York music culture? There are lots of different cultures within both of those cities. So when I moved to Verve, it was part of what was at the time Polygram Records, which later moved, later um, merged with Universal. Uh, and it was at Worldwide Plaza on 8th Avenue. And each floor was either a different label or a different set of labels. So I was on the 26th floor where it was Verve and a bunch of classical record or classical record labels. And it was called Polygram Classics and Jazz. And, and, um, and so I got free tickets to operas and, um, you know, and, and, you know, great recordings of classical stuff and learned a lot about classical as well as jazz because I happened to be on a floor where that's who you bumped into at the water cooler. But if you went down a couple floors, you were at Mercury Records and they had all kinds of music from rock and roll to rap to lots of R&B, um, adult contemporary, uh, rock, triple uh, A. Um, and um, I, there, there were tons of different cultures within the building, within different sections of different floors. Um, and we all, you know, as I made friends, uh, you know, at, with different people at different labels in the building, you know, we invited each other, invited each other to each other's shows, and um, you know, got to learn about hip hop and blues and AAA uh, and folk and whatever. Um, so that was true in New York. That was also true in uh, in LA. Um, but I actually ha had two different experiences when I was in New York because it, like I said, at first I was in the headquarters of, uh, of Polygram. And then at one point, the label head, my boss, Chuck Mitchell at Verve said, you know, all you've done so far is radio promotion. And if you really want to be in a position to run a label someday, you should get you should get some sales and marketing background. And the way to do that is to take a regional position and go, they said, carry a bag, um, go work out in, you know, one of the uh, regional offices and, um, and pick up clients that are retailers. So like Tower and Transworld and Virgin at the time and um, back when there was brick and mortar retail. And, um, and so I moved out to the branch and that was culture shock um, because the branches were largely reflective of the people who ran them. And the people who ran them had very varied characters from one another. And I was in the New York branch of Polygram uh, where I was a regional. So I was the conduit or the liaison between the, the record label and the salespeople. So salespeople think that all the marketing plans that the record labels come up with are the stupidest thing ever and will never work. 
and all of the record labels think that the sales reps that work for the distributor are the laziest people who don't listen to anything and just want to take orders and don't actually bother to sell. And of course, of course, both of those are mischaracterizations. But if you're put in the middle, like I was, essentially translating language between uh, promotion, marketing, and sales, and trying to convince everybody to do more than they were doing and listen more to the other side, um, it was a it was a challenge. Uh, but also, um, I would argue now in in hindsight that I know what say a hostile work environment is like, that there was some of that going on in the New York branch. I voiced it then and was not particularly popular for doing so. Um, but knowing now I would have voiced it to HR instead of the people who were um, you know, in charge at the New York branch at the time. Um, so, so that was, that was probably the start of when I started thinking about law. Like, what's okay here? What's not okay here? What's legal? What's not? Um, and, um, but at the same time, it was a very great privilege to be working the music and to be working with my fellow workers who, like me, were super interested in the best job in the world, which is taking great music and exposing it to as many ears as possible um, so that the people around you can live a happier life because they're exposed to great music. And I was at, and I was representing Verve in the 90s when Joe Henderson Records sold 150,000 150 copy, 150, copies out of the gate. Um, and same with Shirley Horn and, you know, great music. Um, and, and so, you know, getting to work with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Christian McBride um, and Incognito, you know, that it was, uh, it was great. And I had an expense account. And so, which was good to have in New York. In the 90s. Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's, I found it really fascinating that because of your uh, work environment experiences, what got you interested into law did you already do you already had an interest in law beforehand or was that something more of a okay something's really not going right here i want to know more about the legalities behind this um it was less about law and more about philosophy ethics logic like what's right what's wrong how are we going to exercise what's right and what's wrong and for whom and um you know logic what makes sense what doesn't make sense and are you going to apply things uh, fairly and consistently across the board or are you going to do it only in certain instances? Um, so eventually those things lend themselves to law um, but at the at the time um, I don't know I just played with the idea um, until one day I got Chinese food and I opened up a fortune cookie and the fortune cookie said, you'd make a good lawyer. And I broke up laughing because I said to myself, you know, I've always thought about being a lawyer. So I kept the fortune and I taped it my, to my computer. And then it came in handy later when actually I had to make real decisions. I'm sure also too, you're thinking about this at the time and going back to the words of your mother thinking to yourself, if you're going to, if you think about doing the move, always do the move because you, otherwise you'll regret it. Yep. Yep. So 
then yeah. and again this is also another part of your journey where you are now essentially leaving behind something that you're now secured in as a as a job and now going back to school back to law school yeah um well um the um uh, so we skipped a 10-year career which is fine anyway i had fun doing radio promotion it was the best job we're, ever we're, we're gonna go back to that in a second i just want i like okay. to talk about you know the fact that you know the decisions going back to law but we'll go back to that absolutely that uh, yeah no it's not a problem. We could just sum it up by saying it was great. I loved it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and I got, I had, you know, it was just great. But there came a time when, uh, when it needed to change. And I'm glad it changed when it did. So, uh, so there came a time when Polygram and Universal were about to merge. That's kind of a euphemism. Universal 8 Polygram is a better way of saying it. And so Polygram needed to rid itself of like 25% of its work, uh, workforce or something like that. And I was in New York, but I really wanted to work in LA. And so I, I, um, I told the folks at Polygram, you know, if you gave me any job in Los Angeles, I would take it, but I miss my family. I'm tired of freezing and, um, and I really want to move. Um, they were offering a generous um, severance package. And I said, you know, don't, don't work at keeping me here in New York. You can either find me something to do in LA or cut me loose and I'll take the severance package um, and be on my way. And I believed that I was invincible and that there's no way that I could possibly not get relocated to Los Angeles and wow, I was wrong. And so they, um, they, I, I could tell that the day was coming when, uh, when I was going to lose my job and they were going to eliminate my position along with many others. And, um, and while I was thinking about that, I realized that the severance package that they were offering was based on the number of years that you were employed by Polygram. If you were employed this many years, then you got this much severance. But while I was at Verve and while I was at Polygram, um, they, I was actually there for three years as an independent contractor working exclusively for them before they ever called me an employee or gave me benefits or a W-2 at the end of the year. Um, it was a common practice back in those days to incorrectly, unlawfully uh, call people independent contractors in order to get around having to pay them benefits that they would be entitled to if they were actual em employees and could partake in the group programs there. Um, so, so I was there for nine or 10 years and I was an employee for seven. So the day came when uh, I, when I was brought into the conference room and it was me on one side of the conference table and, um, and it was the heads of Polygram Classics and Jazz and their head of sales and marketing and a person from HR on the other side. And they, and so the HR person says, you know, we're eliminating your position. Here are the benefits that you're going to get. Here's how it works. Here's how it's going to lay out. 
And, um, and do you have any other questions? And I said, yes. And so I pull out my file and I said, I think you need to pay me a lot more severance than you're offering me because I've been an employee for three more years here than you think I've been here. And I helped build this label into what it is. I was a part of a team that took Verve from, uh, you know, a, a lesser position than it wound up with at the end of the nineties. And um, in terms of market share and lots of number ones at radio and, um, and Kevin Gore, who was the head of Polygram Classics and Jazz at the time, said in that meeting to the HR person, everything that Rachel just said is true. And I was delighted that he had my back. Wow. And the HR person stammered and said, um, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. And so eventually I did wind up negotiating my own increased severance package um with their legal department but i but i got what i asked for and i said to myself when it was over this is not rocket science i could do this for a living and so i took my severance package and recalled that i had dropped out of ucla in my junior year i i still had a year to go and i uh and i dropped out very reluctantly and i always wanted to go back and I was very anxious to go back and I took classes at City College in New York while I was there to try to get some more credit. So um, by the time that that day came when I was in that conference room, my apartment was already packed and ready to go into a U-Haul. And I put it into the U-Haul and I drove it across country and I unpacked some of my things, went directly to UCLA, said, can I come back? And they said, all we need is 90 days notice because you left on good terms. And um, and so I went back and, and finished my last year of uh, undergrad while doing independent radio promotion on the side um, uh, on kind of a part-time basis and um, and was able to finish my last year of UCLA. During that time, I decided I could take the LSAT. I could, um, I took a jurisprudence class, a philosophy of law class, and I loved it. And um, that plus the conference room experience really made, and of course the fortune cookie that said you would make a good lawyer. The combination of those things um, uh, just led me to believe that maybe it was time to try something different and go to law school. And at the time I thought I was leaving the music business, but I, it didn't work out for me leaving the music business. And I wound up right back in, in a different capacity. Absolutely. Um, so to essentially uh, to talk about your uh, work in marketing and promotion, especially with um, radio promotion, uh, is there, a specific takeaway that you um, that you had through that through that entire experience, um, something that you took with you, especially when you were going into law. Um, business relationships and integrity are very very important, and uh, people can smell it when you're not sincere or when you don't make good on your promises. 
um, or when you promise things that you fail to deliver. Um, even worse, uh, if you promise things that you choose not to deliver. Um, and um, I learned from a lot of mistakes um, and I was lucky to learn from a lot of mistakes in an era where not everything is on social media. So I, um, I'm grateful to those who gave me first and second chances. And, um, and I tried to learn quickly and I worked hard, but it was also so much fun. Um, so I have, I also have a deep appreciation for those people who worked in radio and many of whom lost their own jobs um, in the wake of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that caused a lot of consolidation in the in ownership of radio. And um, you know, I talked to radio people every day for many years all over the country in all kinds of formats, urban AC, uh, straight ahead jazz, uh, public radio, smooth jazz, AAA blues. And um, they all loved what they did and they did it out of passion. Most of them weren't making tons of money at what they were doing, but they loved communicating with their audiences. They loved taking care of their audiences. They loved the music. Um, and I was privileged to be a part of that. Um, and seeing, you know, as radio ownership consolidated and uh, things changed at radio, I tucked that into the back of my head and later wound up with an FCC practice uh, talking to the Federal Communications Commission about the nefarious, I don't know, the um, the bad effects essentially of consolidation of ownership in AM FM radio and how it has harmed the public interest, how it has harmed listeners and how it has harmed diversity, competition and localism on the airwaves. And, um, and so now part of what I do is try to protect that. What's left of it. I definitely, admire the work that you've done especially when it comes comes to that because uh you know we have a fantastic relationship with uh with many radio stations but especially there's one in particular locally um that we have a fantastic relationship with in fact uh while we're doing this recording we're doing this whole uh takeover um of the station because they did a whole fundraiser event and we decided to give the the main dj a break and so we're doing a lot of that you know her segments throughout the entire week uh as a way to give her a break and it's a fun, fun thing to do That's and great. i can you know you know i can only imagine what you know i know how much they go through and this is a vol volunteer run station and uh you know i don't know what you know that's the thing is like yes there is the internet that makes music so widely available but the thing about radio is it is about community it is about taste and those things right. are extremely important to have. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we, we de you know, radio is still very relevant. Radio is still extremely important in getting music out there, um, especially to people that, uh, you know, that are looking for new music. It's still, a, I think there's stats out there that says, like, there's still a 
a majority of people look for new music on the radio. I think it's only only second to, you know, to word of mouth, if I remember correctly. I don't know what the stats are. You know, it, it's it's still nice to have airplay. Um, you know, it doesn't have the promotional effect when that it did when it was the only game in town and there weren't streaming platforms and uh, and satellite radio. Um, but, um, you know, but AMFM radio is still local and it's still part of your local community and, um, you know, and and if you're a local band or if you're a band and you're touring locally, you know, that's where people are. It's one of the very few places where people are going to potentially care about your shows and the, you know, in the venues where you're going to be performing and, um, you know, and so it's better to have live and local people who are there in the building on a mic instead of pumped in on, you know, syndicated programming from San Antonio. And, um, so it sounds like you've got a great relationship with your station there. And uh, that's cool. I look forward to it. I want to check that out. I want to listen. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to hear Bosley be just blabbing on about random stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun, though. I'm getting uh, we're getting a bunch of our artists involved with it, too. So we have some of them doing like little segments and things like that, too. Awesome. It's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, one thing that you did mention before, and I always love to talk about these things because I think these are just great stories, but just also great lessons is you mentioned about making a lot of mistakes and, you know, especially um, in your 10 year career um, in marketing promotion, especially radio promotion. Uh, do you have maybe uh, an example that you are willing to share about a mistake that you made and what you learned from it? Sure. Um, so there was, so there was a conversation between Verve and Mercury Records at higher levels than mine. Somehow the executives between Verve and Mercury decided that we needed help with radio promotion and um, especially at Urban Radio or Urban AC. And they had a regional Urban AC staff. So that meant that they you know, had five or six people of, across the country who were assigned to either go in person to uh, those stations or, um, or be in touch with them more frequently than a national person would uh, would be able to do. And so Verve had some kind of marketing budget set aside and gave that marketing budget or portion of it to Mercury. And, and so there was a deal where Mercury was gonna work our records. Um, but somehow the lines of communication got mixed up. And so we weren't hearing much from Mercury for a while about what was happening with our records. And so um, my bosses at the time, the um, leadership of, of Verve changed a number of times while I was there, um, said, uh, go talk to Mercury and find out what happened to our money and why nothing's happening. Okay. So I hop on the elevator and I go talk to their head of national promotion. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was essentially you know, what have you done for us lately? Uh, you, you know, why, why is there nothing happening? We're not getting in for any information about our records and you're supposed to be working them. And what's up with that? Unbeknownst to me, the person I was talking to who ran their national promotion department was never told that there was a 
change of hands of money from one label to another. And they thought wow. that they were doing it on a favor basis. So I'm essentially like a 24 year old white girl walking into the urban, a urban AC radio promotion department saying, why aren't you working hard enough for me without spending the time to build a relationship and, and find out what was in it for them and what they needed and, um, and making sure that my bosses had, had com communicated clearly to their bosses and that, that all of that information had gotten to where it needed to go. Um, but also it was just presumptuous on my part, change of hands of money or no, to presume that I was really owed that information uh, on demand. Um, I don't know. I was just callous and insensitive and inexperienced and I got much experience out of that. Uh, the person was upset with me for good reason um, and indignant for good reason. And I realized that if I was going to get anything done, but also if I was just going to learn to be a better human being and more compassionate, which was even more important than getting stuff done, that um, I need to listen instead of talk. And I needed to request instead of demand. And I needed to inquire instead of presume. And I decided at that point that I was really going to invest time and attention and open ears and sensitivity to nurturing every relationship, music business relationship and every relationship that I was privileged to have access to. Um, and I took that really seriously. And later, I, I remember later um, when Polygram and Universal merged that uh, the head of Urban AC for GRP, which was the Universal Jazz label, said to the head of GRP at the time that, you know, um, Rachel has a really good relationship and a really good, or she has really good relationships and a good reputation in the urban AC world. And the head of GRP at the time said, well, no, you know, that that's, that's not possible. And, and it was Doug Wilkins and he said, no, she, she really does. That meant a lot to me because I had messed up so badly at, you know, in the early parts of what I was doing. And, um, you know, and it, it, it meant a lot to me. Um, 
So, um, the, you know, so I'm no longer doing radio promotion and I'm no longer asking sister labels to do stuff for the label that I'm working with. I'm, I'm no longer working for labels, but the lessons that I learned, um, stay with me now. And, um, and I'm a much better listener and, um, and I'm not the jerk I was when I walked in and essentially said, what have you done for us lately? The other thing too, is that, you know, we're all human. We all make mistakes, right? It's very, yeah. there's so much nuance when it comes to communication that it's very easy to misinterpret or to come to assumptions. And that's something that we all have done. And I feel that it's just as important you know, we're going to inevitably make mistakes. That's just going to happen. It's more important to, like you mentioned, to learn from them. And it's also about how you handle the mistake itself. You know, and I, whether it's owning up to that particular mistake, whatever that make, mistake is, and owning up to that responsibility, um, as well as the fact of just in general, have how you how you treat people. If you if you you know stepped over the line, or if you you know misunderstood something, how you know, what is your reaction and re response to that? I think that is far more um, important on how that is handled than the actual mistake itself. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I agree. So starting your own practice then, um, you know, that that's must, you know, like any any entrepreneur at that point in time, you know, you, you are now starting, you are creating something from nothing. So can you talk about the first steps that you that you took to developing your own practice? Uh, first thing you do is get mal malpractice insurance. <laughs> so, uh, so it really, um, there are some lawyers that practice without it. Um, I've never had a claim, but, um, you know, but if you are a licensed professional giving legal advice, then you need to be insured against uh, a possible claim down the line. If somebody doesn't like the results they got and, and, um, and decides to make a claim out of it. Um, had to decide on a law firm and a, uh, name and, um, you know, and a domain, um, and, uh, worked out of my home at first, um, wound up getting an office, uh, down the line. And eventually as COVID hit, I wound up moving out of that office and I hope to move back in as, as, um, you know, as time wears on and, and, uh, you know, and the pandemic becomes less of a, less of a thing, knock wood. Um, you know, but, but honestly, it was just, I took a few clients with me and, uh, and it was just word of mouth. I've never advertised and um, and I just work on a referral basis and knock wood, I've, um, I've had a good run and I'm continuing to do so. Um, the type of work that I do over time has expanded. Um, I've always represented music creators, so recording artists, songwriters, producers, and engineers. Um, now, in addition to representing those folks and also representing movie film producers from time to time. Um, I, uh, I also represent now the Music First Coalition, which is um, essentially a coalition of 
recording industry stakeholders on the sound recording side, as opposed to the uh, musical composition side. Yeah, that's also fantastic work. And I see that it's a very a big proponent into AM FM radio as well, bring, going back to your radio promotion days. Yeah, that's true. The um, So Music First is uh, essentially a music advocacy coalition. Uh, so it's nice after many years of volunteer advocacy work to get paid to do uh, some of it in written form rather than just meetings. Um, and when I came to Music First, they were a one issue organization um, and proudly uh, um, advocating for creating a right to performance royalties for the use of sound recordings at AMFM radio. And um, which has long been something that I've believed in. Uh, now they have a second issue, which is, um, you know, Venn diagram overlaps some, and that is essentially um, combating against further consolidation of radio station ownership at AMFM at local market levels. So there's been lots of consolidation on a national level um, of radio station ownership, but there are still caps on the number of AMFM stations that one entity can own in any particular given market. And uh, we want to keep those caps in place. I want to keep those caps in place because uh, we really don't need monopolies in your local market is my, my take on it. And no, I would music agree with first that. take on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so also um, in the fact, you know, I think we maybe talked a little bit before, but the way we met was through the recording academy, especially for the advocacy. So what were you involved with? the recording academy first or music first like how did you get involved with the recording academy specifically um i read in billboard one year that the recording academy was hosting something called grammys on the hill which were meetings between lawmakers and musicians or music professionals people who were members of the recording academy and i thought that sounded awesome i was at my law firm at the time and I wanted to be a part of that. The only problem was I wasn't a member of the Recording Academy and you had to be a member of the Recording Academy in order to attend. So I applied and was astonished that they accepted me and uh, I became a non-voting member. So um, if you have album credits um, and are a creative professional like a recording artist or producer or art director or um, uh, produce, you know, producer engineer, then you can qualify to be a voting member. Since I was a full-time member of the music industry, I qualified to be uh, what they called at the time associate member, which is now called professional member, which means essentially you can do anything but vote on the Grammy Awards. Um, so it enabled me to take um, part in Grammys in the Hill, uh, flew there, and uh, it became an annual event. And I think I've gone 10 times, maybe 11, I don't know. And, um, and over time got better at it. And, um, and then eventually they start, the Recording Academy started having meetings locally in district offices. And I did a couple of those here in Los Angeles and then realized, you know, there's actually four states within the Los Angeles chapter of the Recording Academy. I could do more work outside of 
Los Angeles County than I could within Los Angeles County for purposes of of advocacy and um, and volunteered to help lead or co-lead meetings elsewhere. That brought me to Las Vegas. It brought me to Tucson, to Phoenix. And, um, and so we met in Arizona Recording Academy meetings with lawmakers. And it was, um, it was a privilege to be able to uh, take part in those meetings. And you guys have a great crew out there in Arizona. So thank you. Appreciate your letting me in. Absolutely. You kidding? Like that was, that was so much fun. And for me, because uh, my journey with the Recording Academy is very similar to yours, where I also not on necessarily on the creative side, but on the the business side of things. So I never thought that was even possible until uh, a colleague of mine who's a musician, she suggested it, that I take a look into it. And then when I went through the criteria, I realized at, at this point in time, this. my career. Yeah, like, yeah, like, I could do this. Why not? So then I applied. And then sure enough, I got accepted into the Recording Academy. And definitely one of the best business decisions um, that I made um, for myself, I'm not just even business decisions, just in general, because it is such a wonderful organization. And especially for the ag- advocacy, which I had no idea at the time that all I knew at the time was Recording Academy ran the Grammy, Grammys. That was it. Like, and that's how most people consider the Recording Academy is just they run the, the award ceremony. But it's far more than that between the, you know, the museum and as well as music cares, as well as the advocacy. There's so much that the Academy does on behalf of musicians um, and creators in the music industry, it is absolutely incredible. And that to me actually was the more exciting part. When I realized that it's not just about the awards, it's all these other things and I can make a difference in these other areas. That's to me is what really got me invested into doing more with the organization. Agreed. Yep, absolutely. So let's go on for a little bit here. I actually do want to talk about back for a second into the uh, law firm um, and, you know, your own practice specifically, because you mentioned sure. uh, earlier about a story about uh, a bikini bikini model. Can you talk a little bit bo- about that? And, you know, because do you, do you work with other people outside of, of the music industry for your practice or do you mostly focus on musicians? Um, I do anything. Yeah, I do transactional entertainment work and intellectual property work, but that could pertain to, I've got clients who are cupcake bakers. I have bikini models. I have filmmakers. Um, I have uh, mastering engineers. I've got um, people who create gear, music gear. Um, You know, essentially if you've got any kind of intellectual property to protect um, I can, I can help you. Um, I also have a professional boxer, um, and looking to do more actually in, in professional athletics. I'm interested in expanding that part of my practice. Um, but yeah, I had, uh, I had a bikini model who found herself being pressured as she was becoming an influencer and, gaining more Instagram followers. Uh, she started to get pressure to take more and more off. And a lot of her, a, a lot of her peers, a lot of the people that she was doing photo shoots with were saying things like, well, you know, why don't you do, why don't you get an OnlyFans page or OnlyFans site? Cause everybody's doing that now. And among the influencer set, there's less and less stigma associated with taking your clothes off. And, and at the time, the, the 
the trend was to uh, do it behind a paywall where you could be the one getting a percentage of net profit, a percentage of net profits directly from whatever was generated behind this paywall, this OnlyFans paywall, for people checking you out. But there were problems associated with that in terms of some of the people around her were predatory. And it's one problem that is more foreseeable, perhaps the older you get um, and wiser you get is, you know, once you take your clothes off in front of a camera and on the internet, it's very difficult, if not possible to put them back on. Anyway, so I, you know, cared about this person a lot and it was a, a fine line to walk between you know, what is body positivity and what is sex positivity and what is exploitation? And where do those things change one end of a spectrum to another? And at what point does that happen? And at what point are you overthinking it? And at what point am I just old? And so there was soul searching during that process, both on her part and also on mine. And, uh, you know, eventually we were able, eventually she made the decision to take her OnlyFans site down. And that was the site where people around her and people who said that they wanted to be her quote manager were pushing her to, you know, take more and more off and do more and, um, and essentially be exploited in a, you know, in an environment where she was going to see a portion of net profits, but but that's that's giving up a lot in order to get those checks coming in. Uh, the thing about it was that OnlyFans doesn't make it easy for the models who put a side up to take them down. They intentionally make it very difficult to take it down. And so when she made the request herself initially to OnlyFans, can you please take this site down? They refused and they were going to keep her naked pictures up on the site, despite her revoking her consent. And I got involved and found the uh, person who is outside counsel, who's the outside lawyer for OnlyFans, who calls himself a First Amendment lawyer. I since found that First Amendment lawyer pretty much means porn in legal circles. Or if, you know, um, there are actual First Amendment lawyers, but if you're calling yourself a First Amendment lawyer and your main client is OnlyFans, it's porn. Anyway, so I wrote a letter and said, uh, you need to take this down. And they gave me a bunch of reasons why their terms of service said uh, they could keep it up. And I said, I don't care. And um, anyway, I was able to get the thing down. But what about every model out there who put up pictures on OnlyFans because somebody talked them into it and later they decide they want to take that down because they realize that the paywall is never going to stay a paywall, that those pictures are never going to stay secret, that they are going to be saved, that they're going to be recirculated and that no pseudonym is ever going to really protect your identity in the long term from having these pictures follow you. They don't have lawyer. So not everybody can afford a lawyer. 
And in this particular instance, I did it pro bono, meaning I did not charge the client. I don't do that a lot because it's easy to be taken advantage of. But in this particular instance, it, I think I understood as well, probably better than the model did, how important it was to get these pictures taken down as, as quickly as possible. And because it, you know you know that OnlyFans is gonna get hacked at some point, we know this. So it wasn't just a matter of taking down the site, but, but getting them to confirm that they you know, just got, they destroyed the content and, you know, that it's no longer in their archives and, and that they didn't just deactivate it, but that they really eliminated it. Anyway, so she, uh, she's still doing bikini modeling, um, but she's less at risk for having things follow her that she doesn't want to follow her. I'm, I'm happy and proud to have helped her, but it opened my eyes about not everybody has a pro bono lawyer that will do what I did for free. So anyway, for those models who are thinking about taking your clothes off and putting it behind a paywall, paywalls and pseudonyms, in my experience, don't work. Uh, so it's if you can either not do it or end it quickly, you're probably better off. Absolutely. I do want to talk about uh, representation because uh, something that you mentioned before about the fact is that, you know, that, you know, we've all seen this experience where lawyers can get very, very expensive on the work that they do and rightfully so because of how much that is involved in that process. And I know that, you know, a lot of times it comes down to a, a, on a case per case basis, but, you know, if, if I'm, you know, if somebody is thinking like is, trying to to get something accomplished and is even thinking about you know should they get some sort of representation uh what would you suggest to to those who are like either considering it or thinking about it and so forth but are concerned about the costs that are involved or if it's going to co overly complicate thing the matters or should they handle in their own you know on their own way what what is your advice to those make the phone call and make it early so if you pick up the phone and you wind up on the phone with a lawyer, you're not gonna get charged until they say, I'm about to start charging you, right? You have to come to terms and figure out, okay, is it a retainer? Is it an hourly rate? Most lawyers work on an hourly basis. Um, but, uh, but, but a lawyer's gonna have to learn something about your case before they know how much of a retainer to charge. And so that means that they have to learn at least a little bit about what it is that you want to accomplish. And, the, and therein lies an opportunity for the potential client to learn a bit before they start getting charged. So if a lawyer is interested enough to learn a bit about your case, the odds are you can probably glean a little bit of information about how badly you really need a lawyer at this stage and why, and, um, and how big the, the case looks in terms of how time consuming it's gonna be because time is money. And so the more time consuming it's going to be for the lawyer, uh, the more money is involved. But there are plenty of times when people call me and, um, and I'll say, um, you're not ready for a lawyer yet. So uh, uh, classic cases, you know, people who 
want me to shop records for them. I don't, I don't shop records. I don't call A&R people and say, I've got this client that you have to hear. Uh, instead, I practice actual law like most entertainment attorneys. And what that means is if two people think that they might want to do business with one another, they've identified each other as potential parties that are interested in negotiating some kind of deal, but they're not exactly sure on what those deal points on what those deal points are, then I can help negotiate a deal on behalf of my client or potential client that gets them more in their pocket than they would get otherwise if they didn't have me representing them. And also I can help protect their intellectual property uh, from having more taken away from them potentially than they would if they were not protected by a lawyer. Um, but for but for those people that call me before, it doesn't happen often, but it happens. For those people who call me and say, I'm thinking about hiring a lawyer and I think they're not quite ready, I'll tell them you're not quite ready. But when this happens and this happens, come back to me and at that point, we'll be ready to put something together. I'll be happy to help you. And here's what the hourly rate is going to be. Uh, what gets really much more expensive and painful is when people don't make the initial phone call early. They, God forbid, sign something without counsel. And then they decide later that they want to try to get out of that deal. And they come to me saying, I signed this and I really want to get out of this deal. What can you do? And the answer to that question when something is signed is a lot less than I could have done if you had called me earlier before you signed this. So it's, um, if you call, it's, you know, just like going to a doctor, it's going, if you seek professional advice early in the process of whatever the deal making process is, it's going to be less expensive if you're calling earlier rather than later. Um, that's also the case even if you haven't signed something. If, you know, there will be times when somebody comes to me and says, uh, I need you to paper this deal that I've negotiated. And they've offered various deal points to the other party who has accepted. And now they want essentially a scrivener, somebody who's going to write it on paper for them in a way that's clear and easy to understand and that a judge could understand in the unlikely event of the dispute. But if you've already given away the, the kitchen sink in your negotiation before you consult with a lawyer, it's, very, it's much more difficult for the lawyer to negotiate on your behalf a better deal. Um, so call early. Um, the, it's less time consuming to, you know, for a lawyer to be involved early rather than late and there's less cleaning up of messes to do. That's my advice. It's good advice. And I, I always suggest that for anybody is always get professional help on any level before, <laughs> yeah, before you get into something. It, it makes it so much more easier than trying to clean up messes. Believe me, yeah. I, I understand that very well. So um, I did also want to talk to you uh, on the same lines is about trademark because I know that's a, a focus of yours. And um, when do you think that it's the appropriate time to trademark something? Whether, you know, whether it's a name or whatever logo, whatever the case is, when do you feel like it's the appropriate time to trademark? I don't profess to know what trademark means as a verb. I don't really, I don't use trademark as 
a verb, nor do I use copyright as a verb. Um, I don't give people crap who do use trademark as a, as a verb or, or copyright as a, as a verb, but a trademark is a noun usually. <laughs> and uh, so a trademark is a mark that identifies the source of goods or services. And the way you acquire rights in a trademark is by using it, is by using the mark exclusively uh, in interstate commerce and using it before other people use it or something confusingly similar to it. There is something that you can do with a mark that you've been using um, in order to help protect it uh, called registration. You can get a federal registration in your trademark if you have earned what they call common law rights to that mark, to that trademark or service mark. Trademark and service mark are the same thing. Service mark is just something that a, a description of trademark as used for describing services as opposed to goods. So, um, so you can apply for federal registration for a trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO. I could help you with that. Um, and the and so the so essentially, in order to register your mark which is what a lot of people call trademarking. Um, you need to have earned common law rights in the mark, um, meaning you need to be the original user of the mark. Um, so there's this scene in Spinal Tap where they talk about their band name. And they say, well, we're, we're called Spinal Tap and originally we were called the originals. And then we found out that there was already a band called the originals. So we were called, so we decided to call ourselves the new originals. And then somebody had taken that. So they, so they changed it to spinal tap. Well, uh, that's because they would have not been successful in registering their band name as the originals because somebody else had gotten to it first and started using it before them. Same thing with new originals, but no band had used spinal tap until then. So, um, so you would need a, uh, a trademark lawyer, say like me, to help search to make sure you really are the only one using the mark when you, when you think that you're the only one using the mark um, and rule out the idea that other people acquired those rights before you. And then if you are in the clear and you have those rights, then uh, you can apply for registration with the USPTO and with a registration, you get a registration number and a pretty certificate. And what that is essentially good for is in the event that somebody infringes your trademark, you can have your lawyer write them a cease and desist letter that includes the registration number saying, you must stop now infringing my client's trademark. And instead of throwing the letter in the trash, they will presumably pay attention to it because the uh, downsides of infringing a trademark that has a registration are bigger than the downsides of infringing a trademark that does not have a registration number. So um, when you register, uh, one thing that's important to note is if you do get a registration, it, um, unless you're applying in multiple classes of goods or services, 
you have a registration in a limited class. Might be recorded music if you're music folks, might be live uh, musical performances. Um, it could be merch, wearable shirts, hats, things like that. So, so, um, so if you're looking to register a trademark, you may very well be registering it in more than one class in order to cover your bases in those areas. Um, but uh, yeah, but essentially, a cease and desist letter means a lot more if you've got a registration certificate and registration number than if you don't. Now, something else I do want to mention, Rachel, and this is uh, uh, attribute to you, is that you are uh, a fantastic musical lawyer, and not only that, or lawyer in general, I will even say, um, but on top of that as well is that, you know, you're so prominent in the community from all the work that you've done for advocacy and so forth on behalf of the music community. And in fact, uh, for three years straight, uh, you were uh, been awarded the one of the top music lawyers in Billboard magazine, which is an, a huge, huge honor. And so congratulations on that. It's definitely well, well deserved, including this current year as well. So congratulations on that. Thank you and very much. So I did want to ask you that uh, I I know this is gonna be a little bit of a hard question, but what would you say, you know, attunes you to what do you think in your mind, uh, you know, attuned you to getting that kind of recognition? Like, what have you felt you've done in your career and continuing to do to continue to get that type of recognition? Uh, um, probably getting out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, before. I convinced the Music First Coalition and Future of Music Coalition to allow me the privilege of representing them before the FCC, before the Federal Communications Commission. There was no such thing as a music industry FCC lawyer. But having come from radio, I, you know, I, I saw a docket, I saw a need, um, and I didn't, couldn't think of anybody else who could fill it. And, um, and asked if I could take that job on. And, um, and they said yes and allowed me to do it and have continued to allow me to do it for a number of years. And so uh, anyway, so essentially um, I, you know, I, I do represent lots of musicians, um, but, um, but one of the things that I'm proudest of is, uh, taking on essentially the National Association of Broadcasters before a very powerful trade organization and um, lobbying presence. Uh, who, and they represent the owners of uh, radio stations. And, and um, so essentially I am arguing against them in writing before the FCC um, as it relates to AM, AM FM ownership and uh, and the FCC's obligation to protect uh, diversity, competition, and localism on the airwaves. Uh, that overlaps and coincides with the interests of the music industry. And so it's really nice to be able to be on the right side of things and argue for the public interest and have it coincide with the interests of the music industry that I'm also privileged to be a part of. Um, so I don't really know 
why they picked me, but you know, but part of it probably has to do with that because I made that up until until I did it. I don't think anybody had tried it. You know, that's very wise advice. I think, yeah, you always have to to uh, look outside of the box and things and, and get outside of your comfort zone. I think that's so important for all of us. And uh, again, looping it back into what your mother said is always, you know, making that move. If you're always looking at a path, it's always better to make the move than choosing not to and then regretting it in the future. Yeah. That's true. And it's a good reminder for the future as well. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Rachel. This was, I had so much fun in this interview. So I really, really do appreciate it. Um, this has been an absolute blast. So probably have you back in the future as well. But there's so much more we can talk about. I would be delighted. And thank you so much for having me. It's really been lovely. And I look forward to seeing you in person as soon as possible. Me too. It's way overdue. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rachel. Thank you. Real quick, before I let you all go, I want to take the opportunity to really appreciate the fact of all of you listening to the podcast. I've been honestly looking for ways on how to improve the show moving forward. So if you have any ideas or suggestions on what else we can do that you would like to hear or any other ways that we can engage with you, I would love to hear about it. So whenever you have a chance, you can email me. My personal email address is Mike, that's M-I-K-E, at 8020records.com. Or you can engage with us on any of our social media and just at 8020records on Instagram, Facebook, whatever the case is. Just shoot us a DM. Let us know what you guys are thinking about the, uh, the whole show in general and uh, really do appreciate it. So thank you again so much for all of you listening. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.